According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews 3, verses 16 through 19. We're getting to the end of the chapter, wrapping up the chapter, maybe even today. I say that, and six weeks from now, I'll still be saying that. No, I, I think we can get through it today. Or next week. We'll see how fast we get to it. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, sitting here in carnality does us no good whatsoever. None. So let's make sure we're in fellowship, we're humble to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for your blessings, thankful, Father, for the day-by-day mercies that are renewed morning by morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And Father, we thank you for this day. We realize that's a grace provision. None of us were deserve to be here. Um, Father, uh, with, with Chuck's passing, we've learned how day-by-day day and moment-by-moment moment, uh, we should be presenting before you a, a heart of wisdom. And so here we are, Father. Teach us, lead us. Open the eyes of our understanding. On this day, Father, we want a softened heart to receive uh, the word implanted. Bless our study, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we have been centering in the warning in verses 12 through uh, 15. We don't want the evil, unbelieving heart to be within any one of us. It says, take care, brethren, verse 12, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And uh, did you catch that when we taught that? Are we clear? Uh, You're included in that verse. I'm included in that verse. Every one of us is. There is no believer that's exempt from this danger, from this warning, that uh, any believer can have this evil, unbelieving heart because it's the heart we were born with in Adam. It's the heart that we return to when even though we're saved, even though we have a brand new heart, we can still put on that old heart again and start living in the flesh. And so we spent the time actually to uh, to break that down for you in uh, in these verses. And so I hope that we're we're clear on that. And then it says, "But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today." We have hello. We have. I just saw somebody on the back row. I'm sorry. That's amazing. All right, thank you. No, um, here I'm distracting everybody. What a blessing encourage one another and day after day i'm encouraged today this is amazing day after day as long as it is called today lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin i'm sorry i shouldn't have done that but this is what we get we get daily encouragement brothers and sisters with daily encouragement one another day after day as long as it's called today that is our provision you see, and believers think, well, I just need to, I just need more doctrine. I need to knuckle down. I need to get 10 more MP3s in this week. I need to, I need to crash program on doctrine. Well, if you're doing it by yourself, sitting in your cave, wait a minute. The provision so that none of you be uh, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is that mutual reciprocal encouragement ministry that we're all commanded to do. And so, uh, 
We see the parakaleo imperative there in verse 13. And don't think that uh, you're, uh, you know, you don't have to do this because that's not your gift. Okay, we bust that bubble also. Uh, every one of us should encourage every other one of us. And if you have the spiritual gift of encouragement, all the more. But that's not an excuse for everybody else to not obey that verb. All right. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And maybe that's the surprising aspect there too. And we talked about how the hardening capacity is centered in its deceitfulness. When you think of all the characteristics of sin, the damage sin does and the control sin has over you and other things, the defilement that sin produces. There's a lot of characteristics of sin that we could think of, but none of those harden you the way the deceitfulness of sin is spoken of as hardening us here uh, in this verse. Then verses, uh, the verse 15, uh, 14 and 15, we have become partakers of Christ. And this has nothing to do with the day you received eternal life. This has nothing to do with your positional salvation. This is now experiential. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. In fact, this one verse encompasses all three. This one verse encompasses all three. And so uh, we're going to be looking at these verses where we left off a week ago, and then we're going to move on and gain new ground. And like I say, we might even finish the chapter because verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18 say the same thing five different times. All right, and so we'll, uh, we'll go fairly quickly through that. Um, but before we do, just remember, this is experiential. And you've had it, maybe you've had it once, maybe you've had it a hundred times, uh, even a hundred times isn't too many. You want to have it so many times you can teach it yourself in the way that these expressions are used. When we talk about positional versus experiential versus ultimate, okay? Those were our three terms. And we're talking about the moment of uh, we come to the cross, the moment we become born again. We also talk about the rest of our lives, and then we discuss being face-to-face with Jesus Christ when we depart at physical death or rapture, when we depart uh, to be with the Lord. And so, and I've drawn this out before. We've drawn this out. In fact, I've got last week's drawing here, I think, maybe. Um, Or maybe not. Do I have it? Yeah. Remember that? And you all were complimentary on my artwork, which I appreciate. But we, we, we proceed from the cross to the crown. And so that moment that we come to faith in Christ, we, we represent that with the cross. For me, that was September of 1973. For you, it was whenever, whenever you pass from death into life and, and, uh, and God saved. But then you keep on being saved through the process of your Christian walk on an experiential basis. And then ultimately, we will be saved when we are absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So from the cross to the crown, we've got these three phases that we deal with. Phase one, phase two, phase three. And that's true for saved, that's true for justified, that's true for sanctified, that's true for a lot of concepts that are taught in the New Testament. And we want to be clear on that. And so it's true here with partakers of Christ. We we are positionally partakers, we are experientially partakers, and we are ultimate partakers when we are present with Him forever. And so those aspects become important. All right. And I think uh, verse 14 actually encompasses all of them because the verse does reference the beginning of our insur- of our assurance. Do you see that there? 
if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. And so there is a, a phrase within this verse that does point back to something that had a start, something that had a commencement, a genesis uh, in terms of that. And of course, what's our assurance? That's faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. And so I think this verse can encompass the positional partaking, but then it talks about until the end, when it says if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, well, what's the end about? I think that points us forward to what we're looking for, all right? Either physical death or rapture. When we when we finish our course, when we know that we're ready to be uh, absent from the body and to be at home with Jesus Christ. And so the end, Chuck reached his tell us his end, and we don't know when, when our turn is going to be. It could be today, either through physical death or rapture. And so uh, we live as if it is today, uh, every day, day after day, as long as it's called today. And then in the meantime, we have the experiential partaking. And you know it's experiential, why? Because it's connected to an if, all right? Uh, more often than not, this is usually a big a marker in the text, Uh, If you come across an if, and if something depends on you, that's not your salvation, and that's not going to heaven, okay? Because phase one doesn't depend on you. Phase three doesn't depend on you. But everything in phase two does uh, depend on you. Are we clear? Because it's your volition that either obeys or disobeys. It's your volition that walks in the the spirit or walks in darkness. It's your volition that chooses uh, how you're going to walk and how you're going to serve. And since we have a great big if here in verse 14, if we hold fast, that holding fast, and maybe we will, maybe we won't, that's, that keeps it centered on the experiential um, partaking of Christ. And, uh, and that's where we have it there. All right. And so we have holding fast. We have it. We saw it earlier in verse 6 about being the household of God. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. This is the temple worship of believer priests. Uh, If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There too, it's an experiential application conditioned on a great big if. Are you in fellowship? You're the priesthood of God. You can operate in his holy temple. Are you out of fellowship? Well, then forget about it. He's not going to hear your prayers. All he's waiting to hear now is confession so you can be restored to fellowship. Anything you want to babble on about prior to confession, he's not listening. All right? Because your sins have created a barrier between him and you, and he will not listen, it says. So we have it in verse 6. We have it in verse, uh, verse 14. We have it in chapter 10 and verse 23. Let us hold fast the, con- the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's a, that's a, a first-person plural imperative there, and the author includes himself in that. and says, let's do this. Let's do this thing, right? And so uh, that's the, uh, the sense of it there. Even 1 Corinthians 15, we taught this. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 2, connected to the gospel. There's a gospel that you heard, there's a gospel that you believed in, but then there's the gospel you stand in. Does that mean there's different gospels? No, it means that we go from phase one to phase two, and we've got to keep walking by faith. So I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you presently now stand. So receiving it is one thing. 
and it is a, a, fact, a fact of the matter, completed action, you're a believer. You have eternal life. You received the gospel. But now, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, uh, in which you presently stand, by which you are presently saved. That's experiential. Connected to a great big if. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed to no purpose. Unless you believed thinking that phase one salvation was all you needed. And uh, you don't need the ongoing experiential salvation all day, every day. Okay? The Word of God will save you, but guess what? You have to use it. You have to walk by faith. You have to unite the Word of God with faith. And if you don't, do you think the Word of God's still going to save you? No, because it's connected to this great big if. Okay? And so there it is. And those, uh, that's, that's the thrust of not only this warning, it's the thrust of the warning in chapter 6, it's the thrust of every warning in the book of Hebrews. On an experiential basis, are we walking by faith? Are we walking in this manner that's consistent with the, the, the grace that saved us? Say, because we've been given so much. To throw that away, to, st- to stomp on it, to regard it as unclean, to, uh, oh, and in the case of these guys, to abandon New Testament Christianity and go back to Old Testament Judaism, right? That's what they were in danger of doing. You and me, we'd, we'd, we wouldn't go back to Old Testament Judaism, but we would apostatize and go back to whatever our Gentile, unbelieving dog kind of life used to be, all right? Um, how, how unthinkable is that? How, uh, how, when he's done so much, when he's done so much for us. So, that's the, uh, the application there. All right. Now, these redundant verses. <laughs> Let's look at it. Because see, we have five rhetorical questions and they all testify to the same truth. Five rhetorical questions. Why do you ask a question when you already know the answer? All right. And you know the answer and they know the answer. So why do you bother asking it? Because you force them to say it out loud. You force them to say it out loud and you force them to say it out loud again and again and again and again and again, all right? Five five times. And so the point gets driven home. And then they're left, they're left where they're left with, with no excuse, okay? So, who provoked him when they had heard? Well, who's he been talking about the whole chapter? He's talking about Israel, talking about the Exodus generation. The whole chapter has been about that Exodus generation and, and um, all the way, you know, when we talk about today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. So he's been, he's been hammering this Exodus generation for the whole chapter, or at least since verse 7, and uh, been driving that point home. And now to make sure they get it, He's asking them. He's asking them. Just repeat it back to me now. Humor me here. With whom was he angry? Were you listening? With whom? Who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? That's question two. So he answers it for them, but then he has that, you know, that indeed and question mark at the end. Okay. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Question three. Keep asking the same thing over and over. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah, those guys. What are you trying to say? The fourth question, 
um, whose bodies uh, fell in the wilderness? Oh yeah, those guys. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? All right, so over and over and over and over again, he's driving this point home. And so we can, uh, we can glean these things too. Say, all right, I get it, I get it. Yeah, those guys, those guys. So what's my application here? Okay, well, the application is what he's been saying. Don't be like those guys. Don't, uh, today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't be like those guys. If you would hear his voice, soften your heart. Listen to the word of God. So we have five rhetorical questions. Understand, the greatest Old Testament provocateurs were the redeemed people of God. He wasn't mad at the Egyptians. Yes, he cursed them. Yes, he gave them plagues. But all of that was just to get Israel out of there. Who did he swear in his wrath? Did he take an oath against the Egyptians? Did he take an oath against the, uh, the uh, Jericho, the inhabitants of Jericho, or any of the Canaanites in the land? The Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the, all the there's seven ites in the land. Okay, All of them greater and mightier than Israel. And yet, with whom was he angry? None of them. The anger was against his own people. So uh, the greatest Old Testament provocateurs. Keep in mind, to whom much is given shall much be required. We're going to see that. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself on the slides. But keep in mind the, the position of intimacy. What nation has there ever been on the face of the planet besides Israel? The Jewish nation. The covenant people of God. There never was. Right? Even to this day, there's never been an earthly nation. As spectacular as America is, we are not the covenant nation of blessing. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so to be called by grace and to be placed in that position of intimacy, that position of access, that, that, that privilege of, of stewardship of the Word of God, there's, there's severe accountability there. There's going to come provocation to anger because the expectations are that much higher. They are the redeemed people of God. They are delivered by God's grace. They are objects of God's faithfulness, yet they are consistently unbelieving. Year after year, as long as it is called, okay, year after year for 20 years, and they see God's faithfulness, and they're unbelieving. Unbelieving. Only Caleb and Joshua enter into the promised land. And so that's the point of asking this question. And so then you ask this question and you get this answer and you have this sense and then you say, oh, wait a minute. I'm a redeemed, I'm part of a redeemed people. Right? I'm not part of Israel, the Old Testament redeemed people. I'm a part of the church. New Testament redeemed people. But I'm still a part of a redeemed people. Can, can, the, can, can the church provoke God? Like Israel provoked God? More so. Our provocations are worse than Israel's provocations. Uh, but I'm, I'm delivered by God's grace. I'm an object of God's faithfulness. So what happens to me if I become consistently unbelieving? What happens to us corporately as a local church? What happens to any church-age saint? 
And, and if it's not clear in this chapter, it's going to become very clear in chapter 10 when the author explicitly says our accountability is infinitely more severe. How much severer punishment do you think he deserves? That question gets asked in chapter 10. So, recognize that. So, um, you know, unbelievers can sin, believers can sin, but what are the expectations? <laughs> are you shocked when you watch an unbeliever act like an unbeliever? Well, what do you think? What do you expect? He's not saved. Like dogs bark, cats meow, it's what they do. You know, unbelievers do what they do. And, and I, I, why would I be a legalist about it? Why would I be judging about it? Why would I be, you know, why would I uh, try to come, you know, get them to be a morally reformed reprobate? I want to give them the gospel. That's what's going to transform lives. Then once they're saved, we start getting them grounded in the Word of God. Let the Word of God transform their being. And then that can be reflected in their, in their activities. So these questions get asked over and over again. And, uh, and then comes a so we see conclusion. Unless I have, no, I got more sub points. Here we go. Recognize this judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Where does judgment start? Proximity. Those closest to him, and then moves out, then moves out, then moves out. But it is a pattern of scripture. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. All right, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And so here's, here's where they are. In the Old Testament, of course, that's where judgment's going to start. He holds his covenant nation to a high standard. Um, the principle actually is found in the New Testament, but it's illustrated well throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament alike. But the verse I like to quote is 1 Peter 4.17, which we should be familiar with, most of us should be familiar with talking about sufferings. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Last hour we were discussing when is the proper time of exaltation. It's, uh, it may not be this life. It may be the judgment seat and when we can handle the exaltation. Exaltation and exaltation. We exult because of exalting. Anyway, uh, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. In other words, if you're, if, you're, if you're under divine discipline and you're getting what's coming to you, don't boast about that. Just confess, get in fellowship, and, and endure it, and you thank the Father that he's, he's merciful. Okay? The real boasting, though, is undeserved suffering. That's when um, you're being persecuted and suffering as a Christian. You did nothing wrong, but you're glorifying Christ, and so you're suffering for that. Hey, that's something to celebrate. Anyway, so don't be ashamed of that. Just glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, and it does, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so, you know, just stop and think about it. And I think that's the, that's the objectivity test. That's the faith test that we all have to face, right? Because we get divine discipline. We have a father who loves us, a father who disciplines us. And it just seems like those unbelievers are getting away with murder. I mean, they just do whatever they want to do. And they're serving their father, the devil, and they seem to be rewarded in this life. And we're serving our father. And all these bad things are happening to us. 
And it just doesn't seem right. We want to shake our fist and somebody ought to do something about that. Wait a minute. God the Father is disciplining us as sons. And we should be very thankful to have the particular chastisement in time. Okay? Breaks my heart that so few people were here to hear the message on chastisement a couple of Sunday nights ago. I thought Wes did a marvelous job on chastisement. Okay? So if you missed it, go get that MP3. That's our thrill. That's our benefit. That says, hey, I belong to God the Father and He loves me. What a a great reminder. Would you rather not have any of that and be slated for the great white throne? Don't think so. (laughs) Okay? Got some teaching on that coming up. Judgment seat of Christ, great white throne, topics Bill Kelly's working on. Now, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. The accountability starts here. starts here. Uh, Ezekiel 9, 6 is, is maybe the most vivid of all of the illustrations of this. In Ezekiel chapter 9, remember Ezekiel is one of the captives. He was taken away to Babylon like, like uh, Daniel and those children. And, and, uh, but later, years later, but still the same captivity, And in Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel actually was given the prophetic office when he was there in Babylon. And he stands up, and he's got a lot of ministry, thus saith the Lord. And he sees a lot of visions of what was going on back home. What's going on in Jerusalem, right? While we're all, you know, while the remnant is being preserved in in Babylon. See, taking them to captivity was their their remnant, was their blessing. That was keeping them from national destruction in, in Jerusalem. And so then he, um, he watches this, this vision of slaughter. So he, he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. This uh, destruction is actually going to be an act of worship on their part. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. When the glory departs, it didn't part overnight, didn't part right away. There were stages, there were warnings, there were steps. So he leaves the mercy seat and now he's just at the threshold. Kind of like when the little kid says, I'm running away from home now. And he's, you know... More serious than that. I shouldn't mock this. Uh, the, the kid doesn't mean it. He's just, he gets to the door and says, I'm leaving. Okay, well, here the glory is at the threshold and the glory is leaving. But he leaves in steps. And um, so he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads that remind you of anything? Okay, this is not tribulation though. This is the destruction of the first temple. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. If you're a believer under doctrinal teaching and you watch your nation in apostasy, that hurts. Especially a nation that used to honor the Lord. That hurts. And sighing and groaning is like Lot, his righteous soul was vexed day by day. In, uh, in Sodom. And so go mark their foreheads because uh, God's gonna, God can rescue. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity. Do not spare. 
utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. Where does judgment begin? The house of the Lord. You're going to start with the great high priest himself because he was apostate. And then all the priests and all the Levites and all the wickedness that was happening in the temple. And then from there. So uh, you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And uh, it's kind of curious, you know, that guy went out to mark all the people with a mark and it just uh, doesn't seem like it took him very long. <laughs> there probably weren't that many. Jeremiah and Baruch and who knows. You know, later on Jeremiah had to find one righteous guy and couldn't find him. Anyway, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Recognize that accountability is proportional. To whom much is given shall much be required. Of whom they entrusted much, they will expect all the more. We cite Luke 12, 48 quite a bit because we've been given quite a bit. But there's another passage in the Old Testament I think addresses the same concept in Amos. Amos 3, 2 that addresses the same thing and, and does so in a, kind of a, a vivid way. Um, but just you know, raise your hand and say, hey, I am a church age believer. I've been given more than any believer of any prior dispensation. I have the permanent dwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. I have been baptized in union with Jesus Christ. I have been adopted as an adult son. I am a fellow heir with the heir of all things. And uh, every blessing in the spiritual, uh, in the heavenly places in Christ, I've been blessed with. So have I been given much? How accountable am I? Okay. And that's just positionally being saved. What about experientially? How accountable am I? Well, God's put me under a teaching ministry. He has entrusted a wealth of doctrine. Am I going to use what he's entrusted me with? Does he expect more from Austin Bible Church than he does from a non-teaching church? Are we expected to live what we've learned? You betcha. And so uh, Luke 12, 48. I don't know why I remember those numbers so well. Maybe because they're 48 is a multiple of 12, maybe. I just like the combination. 12, 48. Um, for whatever reason, it sticks. I can't explain my mind. But things, numbers stick in there. Like 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And so there's two, two dynamics at work there, the giving and the entrusting. And so, uh, you know, we talk about our positional giving and we talk about our experiential entrusting, the ministries that have been entrusted to us and all these things. I think it's, uh, I think it's clear. Now, Amos. What do we do with Amos? Amos was famous. All right, Amos 3. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you get to Obadiah, you've gone too far. If you can find Obadiah and you can't find Amos, that's, uh, that's something else. All right, Amos 3. I don't know, you guys are just tapping glass anyway. You're not really flipping pages forward. Some of you are flipping pages, good for you. All right, so if you're page flippers, you have to know before or after and you have to work your way left and right. But um, glass tappers just tap. 
Amos chapter 3, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. So with whom was he angry? You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. You only. Do you realize who you are? I didn't choose the Romans. I didn't choose the Greeks. I didn't choose the Egyptians. Didn't choose the Philistines. Philistines, whatever. He chose the Jews. They are the chosen people. So what does that mean? That means he's going to discipline them because they're his children. They're his. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You ever get in trouble with your buddy and you get punished because your dad is strict and he doesn't get punished because his dad is not strict? Okay. He might think he is strict in his own opinion, but compared to my dad... He's not strict at all. And then you complain about it and you say, why? You know, so-and-so's dad didn't spank him. And then the marvelous wisdom that comes with, well, I'm not so-and-so's dad. I'm your dad. And I don't love him like I love you. And this is why you're getting the spankings. Anyway, you're starting to suspect things about my childhood. You don't suspect enough. So, you only, you're the one and only, you're the one and only, unique, you face things nobody else faces, and this is who we are as a redeemed people in the body of Christ. And then these, again, these rhetorical questions, very effective. Do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment? You know, oh, coincidence, fancy running into you here. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he's captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's been no bait in it? You know, just as far as normal things happen, this is what happens. So, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. You've been warned. His prophets have told you about living the word of God. And now that you're not living the word of God, Why are you all shocked that the discipline is hitting you? All right. Well, that's the book of Amos. Anyway, accountability is proportional. And when you've been given so much doctrine and so much content and so much meat, and uh, how how accountable are we then in, uh, in this regard? Very, very accountable. Which takes us to the so then statement. So then, what do we conclude with all this? So then we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. What was the hindrance? The hindrance was not their redemption. It wasn't a problem that kept them from leaving Egypt. There was no problem leaving Egypt because it wasn't up to them. (laughs) Okay? Getting saved is great because we don't do it. God does it. He does all the work. He parts the Red Sea. We walk through all that. God does that. The problem, though, now is now that we are a redeemed people, walking through the wilderness, what keeps us from getting into the promised land? What keep, Remember, the promised land is not dying going to heaven. The promised land is the place of rest and blessing here on this earth. 
So what keeps us there? Is it? It's unbelief. And it's not God's shortcoming, it's our shortcoming. And we're going to see this over and over again. We're going to see it in chapter 4, we're going to see it in chapter 5. The, the author of Hebrews just drives that point home. But I like the fact that he uses here to close out chapter 3, he talks about ability. They were not able. Okay? So what does ability deal with? When are we able? Who's able? What's ability center on? And how does faith connect with ability? Well, there's some fun things to deal with here. Having experienced redemption by grace through faith, let me just recap the chapter for you here. Having experienced redemption by grace through faith, the nation of Israel failed to experience the special blessings in time they were provided in the land of promise. Almost none of them entered the land of promise. Only two, right? Not even Moses entered the land of promise. And you want to talk, there's another illustration, I should have thrown that in there, about accountability. What I thought Moses did was, you know, I thought it was kind of minor, but Moses was in charge. Moses was the type of Christ. Moses, God, God expected more of Moses than he did of everybody else. So when he struck the rock in his anger, that was it. Moses, you just forfeit the conquest. You just forfeit the, the promised land of rest. Having experienced redemption by grace through faith, the nation of Israel failed to experience the special blessings in time they were provided in the land of promise. And how many believers today do the same thing? We're happy to be saved, but we're not entering into the special blessings in time, the, the, the land of rest that's provided for us. The rest you and I have, walking by faith, the rest you and I have in the faith rest life. That's what it's about. What does it mean to enter that rest? Chapter 4 tells us, and we'll get there quickly. Okay? Redemption is great. I'm no argument there. <laughs> okay? I'm happy to be saved. I don't want to go to hell when I die. But it's more than just where do I go when I die? It's more than just, uh, you know, Heaven is, is superior to hell. It's preferable. I would, I, I would rather be in heaven. I would rather not be in hell. But the whole impact on Hebrews is not dealing with any of that. It's talking about where is my mental attitude while I'm still here? Where is my mental attitude now? Between the cross and the crown, where is my mental attitude now? Am I at peace with God the Father, with God the Son? Okay? I should have that peace. I should have that rest. Redemption is great, but it is designed as a beginning which leads to greater things. And so everything we're looking at here, I think, uh, in verse 19, we're just going to touch on it this morning, uh, but stay tuned because in chapter 6, he, he gives more attention to this idea. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, he gives a, a fuller description of this. After another warning, by the way, chapter 6 is a warning that's even worse than the chapter 3 warnings and scares more people about falling away because uh, it says, well, guess what? It's impossible to renew them again to repentance in Hebrews 6, 6. And they're like, oh, that sounds bad if they're thinking about it in a positional salvation kind of way. Yeah, you can't get saved a second time. Well, guess what? You can't get saved a second time. I agree. But you're already saved and you can't lose it ever. So deal with the, the warning for what the warning is really saying. Um, 
get through the warning in verses 1 through 8 and then look at the, look at the, the exhortation in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced or persuaded of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Oh, wow. What could be better than salvation? How about waking up and realizing that salvation is not the end of the plan of God? It's step one. Now that you're saved, now what? Start growing. Start walking by faith. Enter into the the mental attitude rest that we're provided with the inner peace with God the Father and Jesus Christ. And these are the better things, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And what happens is when we get in ministry, we start to serve and we start to start to do things. It's like Israel. They, they get redeemed. They're walking through the wilderness. And then they start to grumble. And then they start to encounter conflict. Then they start to have problems. Then they start to talk to themselves about, well, I've done enough, haven't I? And then they start to uh, grumble about why things are unfair. No, God's not unjust. Don't accuse him of being unjust. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep walking by faith so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So be a Caleb, be a Joshua. Get to the promised land. Okay? But you're going to get there by faith. And the ability is going to be provided to you. The ability will be provided to you so long as you walk by faith. When you, when you abandon faith, what happens to your ability? Yeah, it's gone. It's gone and it's your fault. Okay? And this is powerful. This helps us in our prayer life. This helps us in our testing. This helps us in our discouragements. This helps us because a lot of times when we're not focused on the Lord and we're just focused on problems... Then we get wrapped up in a human thing about, well, I can't do anymore. I'm not able. I'm not able. I'm not able. Okay? Well, get back in fellowship and then see what he's able to do. Okay? Because I'm not able should not be in our vocabulary. That, that, that should never come through your lips. I know it does every time we're carnal. Okay? But, uh, you know, pastors, uh, I get calls on the phone. They say, Pastor, I just got this thing and I just can't, I can't do anymore. Well, what's can't? Can't? Are you kidding me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what can you not do? Let's rephrase this. Israel was not able to. This is a point of able to, okay? And in the point, verse 19 is saying this explicitly. They were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Apart from that unbelief, they had the ability. It, now, so understand this. Israel was not able to save themselves from Egypt. Right? Who thinks they could? You know. Israel was not able to save themselves from Egypt, but they were able to enter into rest. He supplied them with that ability once they were redeemed. Once they were out of Egypt, once they were in the wilderness, as a redeemed people, unable to save themselves, but able to enter into rest. All it requires is walking by faith. 
they were able to enter into rest until their unbelief negated that ability. Don't, I mean, just write that down, put, you know, think about that, because that's, that's chapter 4, that's chapter 5, that's our warnings. There remains a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and we are able to get in there. We are able to get to that rest. Right here, right now. Special blessings in time. The relaxed mental attitude of faith rest. We're able to get there. So long as we keep walking by faith. until their unbelief negated that ability. You see, salvation and living in the Word equips us with every able to for the Christian way of life. Just the fact that you're saved and then you're a disciple. You're living in the Word of God. Those those two things. If you're a redeemed people and you're living in the Word of God, He's equipping you with everything. He equips you for every good work in Word. He provides all things pertaining to life and godliness. Being saved and living in the Word of God. There's nothing you can't handle so long as you walk by faith. What can you not handle? (laughs) All right. And if you think I'm making all this up, I found some verses to prove the point. And uh, sometimes it's useful to just stop when you're under maximum testing and just remind yourself, Paul said, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So we have those moments and we just stop and say, all right, Lord, I'm saved. I'm going to start with that. (laughs) All right, Lord, I'm saved. Thank you. And uh, you've supplied all things necessary for life and godliness in your Word. I want to be living in your Word. It's the Word of God received and planted that's able to save my soul. I want to be living in your Word. I want it to dwell richly within me. I want to be living your Word. I want to walk by faith, not by sight. And Father, you've made all provision. And then when it comes right down to it, everything I do is not really me anyway. You're the one that's at work within me to will and to do of your good pleasure. So uh, just thank the Father for not joining your pity party because He's able to do what you're not able to do. All right. Do you like some of these able verses? I like the able verses. I also like verses that put able on the end of a noun. Right? Prophet able. Profitable. And and that just takes all of these able, I didn't put them on the screen this morning, but all of those able um, nouns, they include, built into all of those is this ability God is supplying us. The dunamis, the can-do provision that God is giving us. So, We'll run through these and then uh, then we'll dismiss for the meal. I don't know. We'll see how long this takes. This is generally the time of day when the uh, food that's being prepped, the, the aroma starts to filter its way out here. Maybe it has been already for recent minutes. I don't know. But the genius of our architect to put the pulpit as far away from the kitchen is I'm the, I'm the, I'm the last one in this room that's going to be smelling what comes through those doors. Acts chapter 20, in Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian believers, he lived here for three years. He loved these people. He'd gone through blood, sweat, and tears with them. And now he's got a team of elders that he's telling them about, warning them about. 
And in this commendation in verse 32, I love this. My dad gave me this verse when I left home. Um, my children, when they leave home, they're going to hear this verse. Okay, Two of them have already. I'm, we're half empty nesters. <laughs> I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Right? Mom and dad can't follow you around anymore. Wherever you go, there you are. And there's the word of God and there's God. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is experiential sanctification right here. But if you're not living in the word, you're not going to have the mental attitude of faith rest that you're supposed to have. Commending you to God and to the word of His grace. So serve the Lord, live in His word. And I've got every confidence in the world that you're going to be a success in your generation. Ignore God and ignore His Word. And I don't care what you do in your education, your career, or vocation, or whatever else, you're a failure in the plan of God. It comes down to that issue. So, able to. I love that. Able to. Are the able to's automatic? Do they just do it for no reason? No, they're not automatic. They are able to, but they don't always. The Word of God is able to save you, but does it always save you? Well, no, not sometimes. You don't use the Word of God. <laughs> so when you don't use it and it doesn't save you, don't blame the Word. Just look in the mirror and blame yourself. You didn't use it. Had you used it, it would have saved you because it's able to. That's Acts 20. How about Romans 16? To him who is able to establish you, you know, do you need stability in your life? He can do it. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to an obedience of the faith to him. Okay? To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Look what God is able to do. Look what God's able to do in your life through the Word of God. Manifested in the Scriptures. Okay, do you need something besides the Scriptures? Do we need to supplement doctrine with something? Or is the Scripture sufficient? Scripture is sufficient. And He's able to. I love that. How about 1 Corinthians 10.13? We all know this one. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. See, God knows what He's doing. He's given you His Word. You are able. He's working in you. But now when you throw that away and start working in your own human ability, <laughs> uh, don't try to claim this promise. This promise is uh, null and void in your flesh. In your, if you're not following God's plan and program. All right. There's the ability. Uh, with the temptation, God provides the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, when he gives you the ekbasis to endure it and you dump that plan and come up with your own solution, is that going to allow you to endure it? Not at all. Because he gave you his plan. You didn't like his plan. So you decided to invent a plan B. Right? God didn't have a plan B. 
So when he gives you the ekbasis, when he gives you the victorious conclusion, and uh, you decide you don't like it, well, change your thinking. You don't have to like it. He gave it to you. Use it. Use the ekbasis he supplied, because that's your provision to endure it. Uh, Ephesians 3.20. All right. Galatians, Ephesians. (coughs) Ephesians 3.20. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Notice? So he's able, but if we're not in fellowship, if we're not engaged with that power that works within us, if we're quenching the Holy Spirit and going back to carnality, uh, what happens to our ability? Yeah. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's beyond the church age and that's to the fullness of times. Ephesians 3.20. How about James 1.21 and Jude 24? James 1.21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, all the remains of wickedness, so confess your sins, get back in fellowship, and get under teaching. Putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness in humility... Receive the word implanted, which is what? Able to save your souls. Able to. There it is. But you've got to use it. You've got to use it. You've got to be humble. All right. It doesn't say it saves your soul despite yourself, even if you're not humble, even if you don't receive it. You've got to receive it. Let it dwell richly. And finally, Jude 24 to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Say, well, I stumble a lot. It's his fault. No. Don't blame him. He's able to keep you from stumbling. Why do you keep stumbling? (laughs) To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. And that I can't overcome. I'm going to stand before him blameless with great joy because the ultimate doesn't depend on me. The experiential does. See the difference? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is where the Father is called our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, eternity past, now, temporal present, and forever, eternity future. Amen. All right. So salvation and living in the Word of God equips us with every able to, but the unbelief of the believer leaves us unable. The unbelief of the believer leaves us unable able. When you get out of fellowship, when you stop walking by faith, when you operate in unbelief, that's a sphere of operation. When you operate in unbelief, you are unable. You are 100% unable. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you're not abiding in the vine, John 15, what kind of fruit are you able to bear? None whatsoever. See, it's, it's, a, it's a effective communication device. You ask a question and people answer it. I love it. John 15. 
Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. This is so powerful. Jesus had seven great I am messages. This is the only one where he turns it from an I am to a you are. He includes his disciples in this I am. Not in any of the other messages did he do that, right? You know, he didn't say, I am the door and you are the doorknob, yeah. <laughs> I am the I am the light, you are the bulb. I am the you know, he never did that with anyone. I am the bread of heaven, you are never until it gets to the vine. And then with the vine, he says, I am, you are, and the Father is. He says, the Father is the vine dresser. And so this is an I am message that includes the disciples, includes the Father. It's just such a powerful chapter. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the unbelief of the believer leaves you unable. You are unable. You you should be able. He made you able and then you went carnal and now you're unable. This is like a spiritual disability and it's your fault (laughs) because you went carnal. You were told not to do this. All right. So that's the warning there. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Are not able. No dunamis. Think dynamite, right? Dunamis, that's the power, that's the ability. And when God gives the ability, it's dynamic. When we lose it, it's gone. We're just not able. 1 Corinthians 3.2 talks about, I wanted to give you solid food. You were not, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. Carnality issue, hindering them from taking in the meat of the Word of God. And I think in context too, um, we could add chapter 2 and verse 14. But it's curious that 2.14 does not use the language of cannot, it uses the language of does not. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And a lot of times we teach it like a cannot because they're spiritually dead, but it doesn't say cannot, it says does not. And intentionally so, I'm convinced, accept the things of the Spirit of God. Then it says cannot. Uh, their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. All right, so there's a cannot there. But it starts with a does not and then has a cannot. Anyway, that's the unbeliever. Our cannot comes in 3-2, where we should be sinking our teeth in the meat of the Word of God, but we're, we're carnal all the time. And so that leaves us uh, unable. And finally, what I hope is uh, not true of anybody in here, ever learning and never coming. Yeah. would help if I was in 2 Timothy instead of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Timothy. When we talk about these false teachers and what they're doing, they enter into households that captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Okay? 
not picking on the women today, but that tends to be where the adversary starts, and then through them to the men. Men can also be weak, men can also be weighed down, men can also be led on by various impulses, and we usually are. Okay, But notice, under carnality, where does that leave us? Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Think how sad that is. To hear a Bible class, but to hear it in carnality. And, and though you're learning in, a, in an earthly sense, you're not coming to the knowledge of the truth. You might get some Bible facts under your belt, but are you coming to know Jesus? Because He's the way, the truth, and the life. Anyway, never able. Never able. The unbelief of the believer leaves us unable. And that's how chapter 3 comes to an end. All right, next week we'll come back. We'll tackle chapter 4, or the first part of chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear. So seeing that great example and seeing the consequences of unbelief and knowing that unbelief is going to leave us in a spiritually disabled way, let us fear. Let's redouble our fear of the Lord. While a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So we'll pick up there next week. Father, thank You for this truth. Thank You for Your faithfulness for the book of Hebrews. For the admonishment, Father, that uh, I thank you that uh, Luke or Barnabas or whoever this author was, Father, I thank you that he had a body of Jewish believers on the verge of apostasy, that they were on the verge of walking away from New Testament Christianity. They were on the verge of going back to their Old Testament Judaism. And because of that, he got to write this, he called it a brief word of exhortation. He got to write these 13 chapters that are so uh, alive and powerful for us today. Because we all, Father, have the risk, the danger, the temptation. We can fall away from the living God. We can have an evil, unbelieving heart. We can uh, fall short of the rest you've designed us for. Now, we don't fall short of the glory of God. We're already there. Yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're past that now, Father. We're sinners, but our sin has been paid for. We're saved by grace. We no longer fall short of the glory of God. Positionally, we are in Christ with every glory Christ has. It's just this next aspect, Father. Experientially, falling short of your rest. So Father, as we move from chapter 3 to chapter 4, open our eyes to see what your rest is all about. We want to enter into your rest And if we've never understood faith rest before today, let let us start understanding it truly right here, right now, and every day moving forward, Father. It's not geographical. It's not a land we have to move to or live in. It's a mental attitude. We are going to rest from our works as you rested from your works. So Father, open our eyes to see this so that we can rest today, day after day, as long as it's called today. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.